reads the scriptures that directly relate to the sermon today that first of all we are going to look at the passage of scripture that recounts for us the triumphal entry of Jesus that we celebrate today. We are in John chapter 12 beginning at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As scripture says, do not be afraid, O Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had been and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him had continued to spread the word that he had called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. In John chapter 12, verse 1 following, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly, genuine spikenard ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his twelve, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Amen. May God bless to our hearts an understanding of this part of his word. And now let us worship God with our gifts. I'll stand. Some members of the congregation here know that Arthur Van Wingard and a very remarkable Dutchman who has 16 children in a great mission that has worked in Haiti and has as its purpose the uh, supplying of food to the hungry there, uh, and who has been a man of very robust health, 
I received a, a very frightening telephone call last night late uh, that he had uh, never been in the hospital one single day in his life and has never been sick and uh, was undergoing a test in a, a hospital, a treadmill test, and uh, the test had to be stopped and his condition deteriorated very rapidly and his heart stopped twice and uh, they were uh, deeply concerned that he might not live through the night. I'm glad to say that he is better this morning and that uh, they've asked many people to pray for him. And I thought that those of you who know about him and his service in Haiti and his family might wish to be in prayer for his welfare. Now then, today I want to speak to you about uh, worship. I want to talk to you about betrayal because it has to do with this man, Judas. None of us like to preach about Judas. We don't like to think about him, and yet I am almost convinced that if you should ask a secular crowd to name any of the disciples of Jesus or what they knew about them, Judas' name would almost always come to the surface. It would come to the surface because of the infamous deed which he did. Some people might be able to name Peter or James or John, I doubt it. But Judas has become a synonym of a person who is a traitor. And one of the interesting things that should cause us to pause and think is what I've placed in the bulletin today to keep in your mind. And that is that our master was betrayed by a disciple, by one whom he had chosen himself, by one who heard every single sermon that Jesus ever preached, by one who evidently possessed miraculous powers when Jesus sent his disciples out to heal the sick and to do many remarkable signs and wonders. One who was of his own intimate household. One who was his friend. And yet this friend executed the darkest design in all of the history of the world and it came about just the week after Palm Sunday began. You see, what had happened was that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, as the Gospel of John portrays it for us, is the seventh of the great signs or miracles which Jesus did, authenticating who he was, the Messiah, the true Son of the living God, and the Savior whom God had sent into the world. The resurrection of the Lazarus of Lazarus from the dead had caused thousands of people to want to see Jesus. At the time of the Passover, which celebrated the event in which God delivered his people from the sore bondage in Egypt, Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from every place would crowd into the city of Jerusalem. 
And Jesus had determined that he would go up to Jerusalem, knowing already that plots had been made which would lead to his death, but knowing too that God had brought him into the world for a purpose, and that purpose would be the redemption of our souls, and that purpose would be to show forth the love of God and the victory and power over death, and that purpose would be the reason for which Joel will be leaving us on Wednesday to go to Kenya to take the love and the service of the Lord Jesus. But the manner in which he is betrayed is something that should cause us all to stop and to think. I do not believe that Judas was any moral monster. I do not believe that he was like some little mechanical man that is simply wound up with a key and that walks his way across the page of history and falls into the pit of hell. No, Judas. Judas heard Jesus. He had his own ideas about following Jesus, and Jesus loved him. And you know, if you stop and think about it, there was even a time when God loved the devil. Did you know that? Before the worlds were ever created, God loved the devil. And there must have been a time when the devil loved God. But in this strange realm which is hard for us to penetrate, souls are often hardened through subtle and devious ways in which they rebel against God. I don't know what Judas expected. We do know that he was a zealous patriot, we do know that he was intimate with Jesus and close to him. And that intimacy, we are warned, is also to be a warning to us. It's a possible thing to sing, Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end and be a perfect liar and a perfect traitor and one who will not serve him to the end. It is possible to be dominated by greed, or by lust, or by hatred, or by any of another hundred sins that might creep into our minds or hearts or lives. We can take the Holy Supper. We can say all the holy words. We can pretend at prayers and still be disloyal to Jesus Christ. And so our very association may be a temptation. And remember this, the devil would rather gain one who belongs to the inner circle of Christ than a thousand who stand out on the edge. It's a much greater victory for him to find a traitor among the ranks of those who profess to be Christians than it is those in the bawdy houses and the pornographic movies and in the secular world which is so far removed from any devotion to Jesus. And so what he wants to do, 
is to be in church every Sunday morning, to be sure to it that we do not take this matter of loving Jesus too seriously, and that we do not examine our own souls like we should, lest we be true followers of the Lord. That's the business of the devil who led that rebellion against God and his angels. What are we doing in the kingdom, and can we be trusted? Remember where Jesus was when he was betrayed? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I have been there, and many of you have too. He was betrayed at a prayer meeting. He was betrayed on the most sacred ground on the whole planet Earth. That's where he was betrayed, a holy place. And how was he betrayed? Judas came up to him and kissed him. The sign of love was prostituted into a sign of defilement and defeat for Judas. And so it's possible for us to be in a church and be unclean in our heart and unholy in our motives and to be in league with the powers of darkness. Judas's sin was money. He wanted money. He must have wanted position and fame. Many scholars feel that when he went into the city of Jerusalem on that day and saw all those crowds of people and those little children singing the Hosannas and the crowd singing Hosanna, you'll remember some of you that the word Hosanna is an Aramaic word. It's like the words that Jesus said from the cross in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And it's why they misunderstood, thinking that he called from Elijah. The word Hosanna does not mean praise the Lord. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hosanna means save us or save us, Lord. And what would all of these Roman soldiers lined up and down the streets have thought? if they heard that crowd looking at Jesus, even though he was riding upon a little donkey, and seeing these people with their palm branches, which were the sign of Judas Maccabeus, a great hero who had once fought against an alien people who had oppressed the Jews, hearing him say, save us. Maybe the CIA agents that would have been a part of Pilate's group came back and said, Governor Pilate, we want to tell you something. Hosanna does not mean praise the Lord. Hosanna means save us. And these Jews may be up to something that you don't know about. But that one riding upon that little donkey had not come to set up a rebellion. And this may have been the thing that triggered Judas into his betrayal. 
John tells us early on in his gospel, in the record of the gospel, in the sixth chapter, that Judas was uh, known to Jesus for his treachery by that time. I don't think at the time Jesus called him that he knew that, but his character began to change. He wanted to see what he could get out of it. Money was what he wanted now. And money was what he went after. And so that's why the contrast comes in the thing that I wanted us to see when I had read in your hearing the account that shows us the contrast between the worship that Mary gave to Jesus. When she came there to the feet of Jesus when he was in her home in Bethany, just two miles away from Jerusalem, and demonstrated an insight into the heart of Jesus which his own closest disciples had not yet comprehended. Her spiritual sensitive soul had somehow listened deeper and felt more keenly that Jesus was going to the cross and that something terrible was going to happen to him, but that God would use even that terrible thing to bring out something good. She was bewildered by it, and she could not understand it. But remember that Mary is the one who is always pictured as sitting at Jesus' feet, listening and learning. And so Jesus has his feet anointed by a very costly ointment of nard, which, as I've explained, came from northern India and was enormously expensive. And when this ointment was placed upon the feet of Jesus, there is this criticism which originates with Judas. Judas, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, he had given up on Jesus by now. He had thought, well, if he didn't take advantage of that big crowd on Palm Sunday, then he's not going to be the type of Messiah that I want, and I might as well get the money that I can get out of it. And so he criticizes Mary's worship of Jesus. He says, why was not this sold for 300 denarii, a whole year's wages of a working man, and given to the poor? And John is careful to note that he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And in the other records of the gospel, we are told that wherever the gospel shall be preached, this also shall be told of her for a memorial for me. 
He wanted us to understand that. I think he must have looked Judas right in the eye when he said this. Every time he preached a sermon and he warned that you cannot serve God and mammon, he looked Judas right in the eye. Every time he warned about the deceitfulness of riches, he would look Judas eyeball to eyeball. When the rich young ruler turned and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions, I think he must have turned and looked right at Judas and shook his head because he knew where his temptation lay and it lay with that money business that that was going to trip him up that avarice and that greed I've been studying the play by Robert Bolt a man for all seasons which is the story of Sir Thomas More. It's a great play. And in it, Sir Thomas, who is characterized by Samuel Johnson, who is one of the greatest figures in all of English literature and history. Samuel Johnson said Thomas More possessed the greatest virtue of any man these islands, that is England, ever produced. King Henry VIII lied to him and deceived him and had him deliberately put to death because he would not consent to King Henry's divorce of Catherine and his marriage to Anne Boleyn. Sir Thomas More was an honest man. He was not a clergyman. He was a lawyer. Cardinal Wolsey was the Lord Chancellor of all of England. And in Robert Bolt's play, when it opens, there is a young man from Cambridge who is very ambitious. And he comes to Chelsea, where Sir Thomas More lives. And he wants a job a post, but he wants a post at court around the king and the famous and the great folk. And he asks Sir Thomas if he will give him a post, and he calls him Rich affectionately. And he's, his name was Richard Rich. And he says, no, I will not offer you a post at court. But I may have a post for you. And so Rich spends a whole night waiting while Sir Thomas goes to visit with